Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 30, Announcements and Questions. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Well, here we are at the end of Season 2, and we have our questions and answers episode. First, though, there are several announcements I want to make. I know some of you skipped these announcements, which I understand, but I encourage you all to listen this time around. There may be something that interests you. First, I want to thank all of you for supporting the show these past couple of years. At the end of last year, we were just over 100 followers on Twitter, and now we're at 400. Of course, thank you all of those who follow on social media, no matter the platform, and who have told somebody about the podcast or who have left a review. And if you haven't left a review, please do so. A special thank you to our patrons. Your support over the past several months has been amazing. Those who support the show at our Inc. of Privilege level and above, there will be a new episode or episodes of our Tales of the Andes in the coming months. Creative writing for me takes time, something I currently lack. I don't force an idea on paper if I don't like how it flows in my mind. So if a story isn't working out, I set it aside for a bit until something comes to me. It isn't the quickest way to write, but I think it has produced work in the past that I'm quite proud of. Thank you for your patience, and as I said, I should have a couple stories out in the few months. And all of you should thank our patrons, really. Because of them, I will be able to upgrade the website. I had hoped to do this a couple months ago, but again, time is hard to come by these days. However, soon you'll be able to stream audio right from the website. No more clicking on a link to take you to the audio. I'm also looking at integrating maps into the website as well. Not clear if I can do that, but it is something I'm going to look into. Upgrading the website will also allow me to set up a store or sell products through the website. Now, to have a store, I would need something to sell. However, I do not. Instead, I think this would be an awesome opportunity to showcase products crafted by artisans from Peru and the Andes in general. I would promote these products on the show, meaning you'd all have to endure the occasional commercial. But it wouldn't be about razors or anything like that. It'd be about a piece of work crafted by somebody from South America. As compensation for promoting, I'd ask for a surcharge of maybe 1-5% to from the sale of that particular product. And what I hope you see is that I'm not trying to get rich off of this. Instead, what I'm trying to do, other than assist indigenous artisans, is to sustain the show for the long haul. You see, believe it or not, one day this show will end. And I assume that those who support the show on Patreon will move on, which is understandable. But I hope to keep the website up and running for years after that, as future listeners discover the show. Plus, there are other projects associated with the show I'd like to explore. I'll get into one of those projects in a moment. 
but to showcase artisans on the website, I could use your help. I know some of you are from Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, or have family who are living there. Perhaps you know someone or have a connection to an artisan that would like the ability to have their work featured on the show and in the store where it will gain exposure to listeners all over the world. The idea is in its nascent stage, but I would love to discuss this some more with those of you who have the kinds of connections or relationships I just mentioned. You can reach me, of course, through the show's email, Podcast at gmail.com. One project I am hoping to accomplish in the near future is expanding the podcast audience. This idea started out when I read an article about a young female Quechua rap artist, Renata Flores. Music is something I think is universal. One can enjoy it despite not knowing exactly the lyrics. Renata Flores is really promoting her heritage as well as women's rights through her art, and I highly encourage you to read the article that I have linked in the show notes about her. Anyways, after reading the article, I got to thinking, to appeal to a larger audience, I'm going to get into the Quechua rap scene myself. Okay, okay, I'm joking. But the article did make me think about how great it would be to have the podcast available to those who don't speak English or would prefer to listen to the podcast in their native language. I'm not necessarily thinking of Quechua at the moment, but Spanish more specifically. Now, I'd love for someone to create a podcast in Spanish about the Inca and to have it be their own. How they present the information will be different than how I do it. They will be able to read the accounts of the Spanish as they were written, which I just cannot. But let me tell you, history podcasting is quite an investment between research, more research, writing, additional research, rewriting, recording, editing, and then promoting. It is a lot. One day a Spanish or even Quechua podcast on the Inca will be out there preferably by someone from the area. And I think the world would be better for it. Until then, to further advance the education and knowledge of the Inca, I thought getting the podcast translated into Spanish could be a goal. Now, I personally had a goal of becoming a better Spanish speaker when I started this podcast. I was even going a step further and trying to learn Quechua as well. However, as some of you who have followed me on Duolingo know, I have come up well short of that goal. Again, it just all comes back to the time. I just don't have the time to dedicate to the practice. So I would essentially be hiring someone, preferably a native Spanish speaker, to translate the scripts that I have and reproduce the show in Spanish, with changes to certain introductions and announcements. This person would need a mic and be familiar with recording. I'd be willing to pay by the episode, though I'm not sure how much at this moment. That payment would come from the supportive listeners on Patreon, or possibly anything the website store brings in. Again, this is a fairly young idea, and I would love to gauge interest and get some thoughts from you, the listener. 
I'm not aware of many history podcasts that have attempted to have their work translated into another language. It wouldn't surprise me if there are a couple out there. But I think that this is a way to really reach more folks and increase interest in a subject that I know all of you have enjoyed. So again, please let me know what you think by emailing me at incapodcast at gmail.com. Okay, our last announcement, the schedule. This is our last episode until February 7th, 2021. I expect a very busy winter. Of course, I'll be doing research for the show, but also trying to implement a few of the things I just mentioned. But then there's COVID. My son has already had to stay home from daycare because of a slight fever this fall. He was fine. It was just him teething a bit. But restrictions are tight, and every sniffle risks having to keep him home from daycare. And then the day of this recording, the daycare was actually closed for a positive test from one of the staff members. Now this all came out on a Friday, so the place had plenty of time to become sanitized over the weekend, and kids can hopefully return tomorrow. But you can see that the problem that I will likely run into if this keeps occurring. If he stays home, I can't work. And so when do I work? At night, when I normally work on the podcast. I anticipate the aforementioned situations to occur again. And if you're a parent, you can probably relate. I'd love to keep things on schedule, but if I don't have the research where I want it to be, I'm not going to sacrifice the quality of the show just to get episodes out. I hope you all understand. Either way, an update will be out in early February to give you all an idea of where things stand. Alright, so that was quite a bit as far as announcements go. Website, store, getting the podcast translated, and the schedule. With all that out of the way, let's get down to some questions, shall we? First, we have listener Jeff B. Jeff sent in a couple questions. His first one, have you ever been to Cusco? As many of you know, I have been to Cusco. As of this recording, November 2020, it has been over seven years since I've been there. I was there to do work on a dig at Minas Pata, outside of Cusco, in the Lucre Basin. We stayed in the little town of Walker Pie, However, we went to Cusco on the weekends for some much-needed food and drink. Let's just say the food in Cusco is far better than in Walker Pie. Next, listener Jeff asks, Will there be an episode on Saxuaman, Rumiwasi, or Tipan? I'd especially like to know more on Ollante Tambo. Well, Jeff, I encourage you to listen to episode 15, Saxuaman, which is entirely dedicated to the monolithic citadel overlooking Cusco. As for the other sites listed, I have thought about doing episodes on specific sites, but I will not be doing that for several reasons. The sites that I have done episodes on, the Coricancha, Saxuaman, and Machu Picchu, I've actually visited and so have a little bit more insight having been there. The only one that I plan on doing that I have not been to is the Island of the Sun. 
Another reason is that the episodes would be far shorter than what I already put out. And I'm not confident there are enough people out there interested in every single Inca site. This is, after all, a history podcast, not a travel one. However, I highly suggest a book that covers some of the most popular Inca sites, Monuments of the Incas by John Hemming. Hemming goes into fantastic detail about several well-known sites and buildings of the Inca. In fact, when writing those episodes on the Coricancha, Sacsayhuaman, Machu Picchu, and the rebuilding of Cusco, Monuments of the Incas was an invaluable resource when discussing the details of those sites. Plus, the black and white photos by Edward Rainey are alone worth picking up the book. Lastly, Jeff asks, I have read that people settled the area after a flood, and that was one reason they built on higher ground. Any truth to this? I am assuming Jeff is referring to Cusco specifically, but either way, there is no evidence that a flood was why ancient Andeans settled where they did. If one reads enough of the Spanish chroniclers, you'll hear various versions of the creation story for the Andes and the Inca. And I mentioned that within our Creation Myths episodes. Some of those incorporate a flooding event, though, very similar to the Great Flood in the story of Noah's Ark. Historians contribute this as a Christianization of the Andean creation stories by the Spanish. And I imagine this happened because the Spanish, and likely others back in Europe, were trying to wrestle with the idea of people being present in what was, to them, a new area of the world. Do floods happen in the Andes? Certainly. Huacar Pai, the town where we were based, suffered a severe flood the year or two before. There was plenty of evidence of the damage that had been done with dilapidated buildings still sitting on the side of the roads. The town is in a basin, but it is still nearly two miles above sea level. But folks continue to live there. No, what you read was likely a Christianization of one of the Andean creation stories. Thanks for your questions, though, Jeff. Next, we have a question from Ryan DeBoer, a supporter of the show on Patreon. Ryan says, I can't help but compare the Inca rise to Rome. From listening to the History of Rome podcast, my understanding is that Rome was able to expand by being the dominant military force in the region, in contrast to other powers like Carthage, who expanded their power through mercantilism and hiring mercenaries. Rome's military dominance came from the maniple system, and in general terms, their never-say-die attitude. The Inca appear to be similar to Rome in this regard, where they expanded by outclassing the surrounding groups on the battlefield. But specifically, what set them a class apart from their military rivals? Did they have any innovations in tactics or weaponry? Ah, oh, Rome. It seems like no matter the area of the world one talks about, it always comes back to Rome. Which is fine. I think it's natural to compare societies across time. It is difficult not to. I'm going to assume that when Ryan talks about 
the Inca expansion, he's referring more to Pachacuti's and Tupac's expansion of the empire, and not so much the consolidation of the Inca heartland, which was a mixture of diplomatic and military projects. While Roman armies outclassed their opponents with discipline and technology, the Inca were on even footing with their enemy in these respects. Their weaponry, a mixture of slings, javelins, clubs, maces, and palm swords, was the same as their enemies. If a leader was killed or a waka was captured, there was a decent chance that the troops would retreat or even rout. So discipline could be an issue at times. The Inca had two advantages. Their roads or logistical system and their numbers. As the Inca brought in more groups, their army would grow. We know that the Inca could field an army in the tens of thousands, even up to or over a hundred thousand at times. The roads, complete with their tambos and colca system, could support large armies such as the Incas and transport it relatively quickly. And I should mention that the Inca wouldn't have their army of a hundred thousand troops all travel at once. That would exhaust their supply lines, so they would be staggered as they march so Colcas could be replenished. It would have been difficult for enemy groups to come up with similar numbers as the Inca unless they banded together and formed coalitions. And some did, like the Quito Confederacy, as they have been called. Yet the Inca could still pull off victories over such coalitions though we are told that they were bloody affairs. Ryan has another question, or statement rather. He says, I believe I heard this in the Latin American History Podcast, but maybe it was somewhere else. But I have been told that the Tiwanaku civilization didn't use warfare to grow in power and influence. I have been told they created great monuments and improved their agricultural technology so that when other groups came into contact with them, they willingly became subordinate to them so they too could get access to the Tiwanaku technology. Kind of like how Apple does not need to recruit much because everyone already wants to work there. I admit it has been a couple of years since I listened to Max Sargent's episode on Tiwanaku. And if you listen to this podcast, I encourage you all to listen to his the Latin American History Podcast. But let's go back to Tiwanaku for a minute. There is no doubt that Tiwanaku had a certain hold on some groups. They could wow with great monuments, and they flourished with their raised fields in the Altiplano. However, the people of Tiwanaku were not bonobos. For those who don't know, bonobos are an ape, smaller than a chimpanzee, that are well known for being peaceful. While they may show aggressive behavior to rival groups, I don't believe that there has been an observed bonobo-on-bonobo bonobo fatality, which is far different than chimpanzees and, obviously, humans. Though we didn't discuss Tiwanaku warfare in our episode, indeed, there is little out there on the subject, I have little doubt that Tiwanaku conducted warfare on certain groups. I will refer to something I mentioned in our Tiwanaku episode. Starting at the base of Akapana, archaeologists have found 21 human burials. 
these individuals were buried face down and because of this treatment and because of this treatment are expected to be the ancestors of subjugated peoples who may have resisted Tiwanaku rule. These ancestors may have been taken from their resting places and incorporated into Akapana to demonstrate the dominance of the Tiwanaku over the local cults. If a group was willingly submitting to the Tiwanaku, would the Tiwanaku then take the group's ancestors and add them as a part of the foundation for one of their monuments? I highly doubt that said group would agree with such an arrangement. Instead, it is likely that the descendants of those 21 individuals resisted Tiwanaku militarily, and they paid the price for it. The Tiwanaku were humans, not bonobos. Our next question comes to us from listener Daniel Infantes, who says, I've been to Lima several times and have visited several archaeological sites that predate the Inca. I wanted to get some more info on who it was that built Huaca Pukiana and Pachacamac. Who were the original settlers of the Lima region and were they absorbed into the Inca Empire or wiped out? That is a difficult question because the amount of research required to answer it. I can't spend a whole episode on this question, but one probably could if greater depth of research was completed. However, I've done enough to give you a taste. The area was occupied by what has been dubbed the Lima Cultural Group at around 200 AD. This group built Huaca Pukiana sometime between 400 AD and 700 AD. Meanwhile, Pachacamac was built much earlier and is estimated to have been settled around 2,000 years ago. The area garnered quite a bit of trade over the years, but came under the influence of the Wari during the height of their power. And Daniel's question did come to us before we covered the fate of Pachacamac, but I'll summarize it here once again. The Ichma was the group in charge of Pachacamac when Tupac Inca Yupanqui came to conquer the area. But the site had over 1,500 years of influence at this point, and the cult around the idol of Pachacamac was strong. So in terms of the religion, a Concha was built for Inti, but Pachacamac, the creation deity on the coast, remained strong. However, some things did change for the Ichma. It appears that with the arrival of the Inca, their great ramp pyramids that they had been creating and using as palaces ceased. So no, the people were not wiped out. Again, the Inca tried to avoid wiping groups out if they could. It was unproductive for the state. Instead, the Ichma and those around Pachacamac were incorporated into the Inca Empire but would maintain some autonomy as well. Richard Harlfinger wrote in saying, You discussed Inca religion and ritual in a few episodes, and I found it very interesting. But I was curious what participation in religion looked like for the common people. Did they attend rituals or pray in their homes? Was it as simple as paying their taxes and following the orders of the Sapa Inca? Thanks for the question, Richard, and no, it is never as simple as paying taxes and following the orders of the Sapa Inca. Religion in the Andes 
is extremely complex. And as I mentioned in episode 17, what I gave was a crash course in Inca religion. Throughout the Andes, all groups had their own huacas. They also typically had a creator god, such as Viracocha or Pachacamac. The sun was often worshipped in some form for many groups. So when the Inca came along and said, incorporate Inti into your religion, that usually wasn't a problem. Groups would still give offerings and sacrifices to their usual huacas, and most people would attend such rituals, even if some of those were taken by the Inca as hostages. Groups would still give offerings and sacrifices to their usual huacas, even if some of those were taken by the Inca as hostages. It was more that the sun or Inti was now directly associated with the Inca. The Inca may have imposed certain rules or rituals when worshipping Inti, especially in the Coriconchas, but otherwise groups were still able to worship their usual deities and pay homage to their wakas. Common folk may participate or attend rituals, either as an audience or as an active participant. Unfortunately, that isn't really clear in many of the histories that I've come across. Our final questions come from Setya Aji Pratama, and I am terribly sorry if I am pronouncing your name incorrectly. Setia asks, As an Indonesian, I'm interested to know, is there any pre-Columbian contact between the Andes civilizations and that of Polynesia? There are some theories out there that South America was reached by the Polynesian culture. Now, mind you, these are only theories. Or I should say, they were only theories. Allow me to explain. When I first read the question, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard that theory before. Polynesians may have reached South America, but because of sea level rise, any early sites are well underwater at this time, yada yada yada. Which is true, but then I did some research, and was surprised. Please excuse me for not knowing this sooner. It has been a hectic year. But in early July 2020, a study was put out talking about Polynesian-South American contact. It is a DNA study that found South American DNA in certain populations in eastern Polynesia, including the famous Rapa Nui, a.k.a. Easter Island. I'm going to keep this at a high level, but I do have a couple related articles attached to the show notes for those who are interested. One theory put forth is that Polynesians made it to South America, around the Colombian area. They mingled or brought South American inhabitants back to the Marquesas, and from there spread to several other areas in the Pacific. Researchers are now looking to see if they can find any sites, similarities in artifacts, or similarities in language to further support these findings. Another theory presented states that inhabitants from modern-day Colombia, again, that is where the DNA study correlates to, traveled westward to the North and South Marquesas in the early 12th century, mingled with Polynesians, who then traveled to several other islands in the greater Pacific. 
Now, the thought of South Americans traveling from Colombia on their own is the lesser theory in this study. When I posted the article on the Facebook page, Thomas from the History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast immediately questioned that theory. However, experimental archaeological sales from South America show that it was possible using the technologies present long ago. Even the winds would have favored an expedition leaving from South America. Despite this, though, I am more inclined to believe that contact came from the west to the east direction, just based on how far we know Polynesians were able to travel and navigate over the open ocean. Again, this is all news to me as well, and is very exciting, though more research will definitely be needed to strengthen this lone study. However, researchers also claim that this explains why sweet potato was able to reach Polynesia so much sooner than European travelers, which segues into the next question or questions from Setia. What is the history of the potato? What plant was it originally? How did it evolve into the modern potato? Did it naturally evolve to its current form or was it cultivated? How widespread is it in the Andes, or maybe South America in general? And how important is it for the development of civilization in the Andes? Wow, uh, what a series of questions. For those who are unaware, the potato originated in the Andes. In fact, there are said to be thousands of varieties, most of which are in the Andes. Again, thousands of varieties of potatoes. How many do you think you have actually had? The humble potato is incredibly diverse, which is amazing when you think about the couple of varieties you may find in your local store. After considering the question further, fully answering it will require more research. However, one thing I've been considering is a dive into a few of the crops we've discussed and that are native to the Andes namely maize, quinoa, and the potato. If you are familiar with the history of China, which Setia is, you'll know Chris Stewart's episode on rice is one of his most popular episodes of the entire show, and the show has over 200 episodes to date. So I hope one day to put forth something similar on some of the staples of the Andes. For our final question, Setia asks, is there any contact between Andes civilizations or other civilizations in America? For example, the Mesoamerican or Amazon groups. Another excellent question. So admittedly, I've been loose when I say something like the Andes or the Andean region. When I say that, I am referring to the central Andes. Technically, the Andes Mountains run as far north as Colombia and even modern-day Venezuela. Whether indigenous groups from this area of the Andes had contact with those in Mesoamerica, I'm not sure. As far as groups in the central Andes making contact with Mesoamerica, I doubt it. The distance was too great. It would have been different on the coast, 
For example, we know that the spondylus shell was procured off the coast of modern-day Ecuador and was traded as far south as Nazca. Now, this wasn't a direct trade between the coast of Ecuador and Nazca, but there was a network there. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a trade network that extended north along the coast from modern-day Ecuador towards Panama and Mesoamerica, but I don't know for sure. Now, the Inca Empire did have contact with some groups in the Amazon. These groups lived just on the other side of the Andes, within the Antasuyu quarter of the empire, and some were considered subjects. The Inca Empire traded with these groups and others, obtaining rare feathers, pelts, and likely agricultural goods. And the Inca even incorporated the bow and arrow into their armies when earlier it had been absent. We'll discuss the interaction between the Inca and some of the Amazonian groups in greater detail early on next year. And with that, everyone, we are done with our listener questions. I want to thank everyone who reached out to me with their questions. I really appreciate it. I'll remind you all to chime in on what your thoughts are about setting up a store on the website and getting the show translated and disseminated in Spanish. Again, there won't be any new episodes of the podcast until February 7th, where we will hopefully dive right back into the narrative. At the very least, there will be an update, but only if things go awry this winter. Let us hope that isn't the case. And with that, have a great holiday, everyone. Happy New Year, and most importantly, stay safe.